All right, I'm turning this evening to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, and we'll be looking tonight at verses 7 and 8. And we'll be dealing with the subject this evening of Behold, He cometh. Behold, He cometh. Let's begin reading there in verse 7, and we'll just read through verse 8. The Bible says, Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Even so, Amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. This is certainly an announcement worthy of not only our attention, uh, but worthy of our worship and worthy of our adoration. It is indeed a divine announcement. It is an announcement being given by He who is divine. Of course, John is penning the words, but it is God who is making the announcement. And you notice that the announcement is very clear, it is very detailed, and it is very particular. Behold, He cometh. He cometh with the clouds. Every eye shall see Him. Uh, we are talking about an announcement with an announcement that will be fulfilled and an announcement that will be confirmed and verified by the eye. This is not a secret arrival. This is a very public announcement, but it's also a very public appearing. John is not describing the announce or is not announcing a parade of an earthly king. He's not announcing the uh, coming of a new government. He's talking about a glorious appearance of our Savior. It is indeed a glorious announcement. The great God who is our Savior. He's proclaiming what we often refer to and know as the second coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is that same Jesus that the book of Acts says that they asked them, why do you stand there gazing up into the clouds? This same Jesus, who you've seen being taken up into the clouds, will come in like manner as you've seen Him go. Now, this is that same Jesus. The same Jesus those disciples saw ascending has said He would come again. And here is that great announcement. He who was all man and all God who is now ruling from the throne in heaven, is coming to this world, and He is coming to this world soon. You'll notice that the word behold is an interesting word. It's not a word we use much in our modern vocabulary. But the word behold is not just look, but it is prefaced with a pause. In other words, when you see the word behold, it is not a word we just immediately respond by looking, but rather we pause and then we look. And we are to look with consideration. We're to look with thought. 
Not just as we would randomly look up into the sky and see a plane going by and randomly look and see, or maybe we hear the sound of the the jet coming before we actually see it and we just casually say, oh, there's another jet. I've seen that a million times before. No, he says, behold, pause and consider this great fact that this is that Jesus who is coming. Now those words, behold, he cometh, is a comfort to you and I, but it ought to be the most terrifying announcement to an unbeliever. You see, most people in the world today, and sadly even in our churches, I do not think really understand and comprehend who God really is. Uh, This is not just a casual appearance. This is not just a casual coming. This announcement that he is in fact coming is an announcement that should terrify the unbeliever and it should terrify them to think about the reality. What would I actually do if that announcement comes to being this very day? The very idea that the Scripture is given to us by the inspiration of God guarantees that this coming is factual. Not something that might happen if the stars line up. Not something that might happen if things go well. But actually, what's going to happen? This will be a terrifying thought. But for you and I who are in Christ, this is certainly words of joy. It's words of comfort in the midst of a dark world, right? And no matter what we're dealing with today, no matter what we're experiencing, no matter how difficult life gets, we can encourage one another tonight by saying, Behold, He cometh. This Jesus is in fact coming. Everything that we see in this world is temporary. Everything. There is nothing that we see on this earth that will last in its current form. Uh, As Jesus told his disciples, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You and I can be cheerful that he is coming. We don't look at our troubles today as if these are going to last forever because whatever your trouble is, is not going to last forever. It is only temporary. Reminded of the Apostle Paul in the 18th verse of Romans chapter 8, he said this, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy. They're not worthy to be what? Compared with the glory that which shall be revealed in us. This, this suffering of this life is not even worthy to be compared to what's going to happen when He comes. Now we realized in Saul last week in verses 5 and 6, we very clearly saw what Christ has done for us as our faithful witness. We see how that He is the one that loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. It is His precious blood that was shed on the cross. It was His precious blood that has cleansed us from all unrighteousness, has cleansed us from sin. And the very fact now that He who saved us because He loved us is now coming again to come and get us. Think about that. He loved you. He washed you. And He's coming to get you. He's coming to get you. Though we often 
look at the book of Revelation and we say, well, the central theme of the book of Revelation, it's got to be the second coming. No, that's really not the central theme. But it does play a very important part. But it is a source of great comfort, isn't it? It's the hope of believers tonight. It's the hope that I have that all who are against the church, as we read in Psalm 97, the very enemies of the things of God will be put down. They will be destroyed. The enemies that are attempting to do damage and danger to and providing danger to us today, uh, every last one of them will be made and they will become Jesus' footstool. So there is a great picture here of Christ as the coming King. So this is a divine announcement. Uh, This is an announcement unlike any other. This is an announcement that has been prophesied throughout the scriptures. It's been pictured in in the Old Testament prophets were proclaiming and, and declaring that there was coming a day that not only would a Messiah come, but there would be a day when a Messiah would return. And so what is he actually coming to do we know he's coming to get us but the verses tell us that it's going to be more than just coming to get us you'll notice in verse 7 that not only does it say he comes with clouds it says every eye shall see him you see christ is not just coming to take us he's coming to judge the world he's coming to put out final judgment The book of Revelation begins here with the prediction of the second coming, and it ends with, even so come Lord Jesus. We should set our eyes and our minds, and I think sometimes we have to do this intentionally, to set our minds and meditate, not in a mystical way, but in a biblical way, upon the second coming of Christ. And maybe occasionally look up. Look up and consider. Behold. Pause for a moment and think, behold, He comes. And what is He coming to do? He's coming to judge the world. It is the very eye of our faith. If Christ was not coming again for us, I would have no real good news for you tonight. I would have nothing really to say to you other than the fact He's coming to judge you and you are going to fall under the heavy hand of His wrath. But because you're one of His... That's not a source of wrath, it's a source of comfort. So we know He's coming to judge the world. But we also know that Christ will certainly come. Now that seems like the obvious conclusion. But do you notice how John says it? Behold, He cometh. He's speaking as if it's already happening. He's speaking as if He already sees it. He's speaking with the eye of faith, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he pens it, but he sees it as sure as if it is right before him. Folks, you know that's what faith really is. Faith is really seeing as if it's right before you already. I don't just hope that Christ comes again. I know for a certainty he is coming again. I know it's a certainty he is coming again, and I know he's coming to judge the world. And he says he's coming with clouds. Now sometimes we get so caught up in the words that we try to put the emphasis on the clouds and think, okay, it's going to be a cloudy day. The clouds here are not a reference so much to the weather, 
and it's going to be a cloudy day, the clouds are a reference to His glory and His grandness. Behold, He cometh with the clouds. John Gill says about this, he says that this denotes the grand and magnificent manner in which He will come, making the clouds His chariots and the visibility of His coming. What it means is, is it is going to be obvious and apparent what's going on. You get this idea that Jesus is going to come quietly and He's just going to kind of sneak up on people and a bunch of people aren't going to see Him. No, it says every eye shall see Him. He is going to make a glorious appearance. Now He came the first time in humility. He came and took on a robe of human flesh. Was very humble. Born in a stable But when He comes with the clouds, He's not coming in that same humility. He's coming with glory. You'll notice with me in the book of Daniel, if you'll turn there tonight, Daniel chapter 7. These are glorious pictures of what Jesus is going to do. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Notice the reference here. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him. And there was given Him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in His kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed." The next time that you're tempted to think that the enemy has got the upper hand on our Lord and His kingdom, correct yourself. Say it out loud if you need to. He is not losing. His dominion, His kingdom is, in fact, forever. Mark chapter 14, verse 62. Mark 14, verse 62. And Jesus said, I am. We could park on that verse and preach the rest of our time tonight. And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. You see this emphasis on Jesus coming, the Son of Man coming, and the clouds being made a reference. Again, it's not so much about the weather that day. It's about His glorious appearance. And then if you go back to the book of Revelation, go to Revelation 14 and go to verse 14. And again, we see this description of a cloud. Again, there are mysteries that we are not going to fully understand till those days are here. But he says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. This Lord, the Son of Man, is coming with glory. But I want you to notice that He is coming with glory and it will be glorious to the believer, but it will be with wrath and judgment to the unbeliever. Go back to our call to worship that we read, Psalm 97. Maybe you saw this when we read through it and that's exactly why um, I picked that particular psalm. 
Psalm 97.2 says, Clouds and darkness are round about Him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of His throne. This is that very majesty of His power, His authority, that He is coming. And for the unbeliever, it will be a day of wrath, a day of judgment, and a day, honestly, folks, that is a very fearful reality. And then if you'll go to Zephaniah chapter 1, and a book maybe you're not as familiar with, it's a, very rarely do we turn to it, but Zephaniah chapter 1 verses 14 and 15, the great day of the Lord is near, it is near and hasteth greatly, even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So it is a glorious appearance. It is a comforting announcement to the believer, but it is a terrifying announcement to those who are in unbelief, who remain in unbelief, the day when he certainly comes again. The scriptures do not tell us about an invisible or a secret second coming, but rather John declares every eye shall see him. I'm afraid we have been brainwashed into believing and thinking that things are going to go one way because something other than the scriptures have told us that. And that there are people who have been deceived into believing, well, I'm going to see if this is all right, and if the second coming happens, and I've, been, I've seen it, I've, I've been taught this, that then I'll choose Christ. Uh, there is no secret coming. This is every eye is going to see Him. When Christ comes, everyone's going to know it. Everyone is going to know it. So Christ will judge the world. He will certainly come. And Christ will come publicly. The eye of his people, the eyes of his enemy, every eye, your eyes, my eyes, will see Christ. Anybody who has eyes will see him. Men are going to see him for what he is. The righteous will see him and they will be thrilled. They'll be glad that he is coming. They'll see Him in His glory as He cometh in the clouds. We'll somehow, some way, we'll fully know what complete satisfaction in Christ really is. We'll rejoice. We'll be filled with the old hymn that says, Joy unspeakable and full of glory. But folks, make no mistake about it, the wicked are going to see and their immediate response is going to be fear and trembling. It doesn't preach well in churches today, I realize that. Sadly, for many of the pulpits, even in this country, the return of Christ has been put to the back burner. It isn't even mentioned anymore. But there's also going to be not only fear and trembling, there's going to be, I believe, almost an astonishment that it actually was so. They're not going to be able to bear the sight of Him. Their eyes will not even be able to behold Him because of the unrighteous condition in which they're in. Even parts of Revelation tell us that when He comes, they're going to try to flee from Him. 
And things are going to be to the point where they'll try to hide their face from him, but no face can hide from God. So he will come publicly. Every eye shall see him. But notice it's also very specific. It says, not only will every eye see him, they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. It's interesting, they which pierced him. Those who are in that unrepented state. All who wounded him, all who pierced him, all who have crucified him over and over again. Those apostates. Those who turn the glory of God into an idol. The pagan world is going to be shook to the very core. Everything that appears to be conquering the world today and the idolatry and the paganism that we see, the evil and the wickedness in this world, they are, they are going to be under the great wrath of God. This God that we say is a God of love, make no mistake about it, is also a God of wrath. He will not share his glory with another, and he will take vengeance on those who refuse to acknowledge him. So if you sit here tonight and you say, I don't need to acknowledge Christ. I do things my own way. I'll be my own captain of my own soul. You will spend an eternity in hell separated from him because there will be a judgment, a sure judgment, and Christ's coming will be a terror to you, you who do not know Christ. Gill again on this verse says, Even so, says John, and so say all true believers, what the wicked lament, they rejoice at. They desire the coming of Christ. They love it. They look and long for it. They believe it shall be and wish it may be quickly, as Revelation 22.20 teaches us. This expression of faith in and the desire after the coming of Christ is signified by two words. The one Greek and the other Hebrew suggesting that this is an article of faith among all the saints of all nations, Jews and Gentiles, and is what they are wishing and waiting for. Folks, this is the very event we're waiting for. We're looking for. We're longing for. That even so, even so, Lord, now, <laughs> we're not, it's not a commanded. It's, it's the longing of the heart is so desirous of Christ's coming. It's the very heart of who we are. It's the pinnacle of our faith that we truly believe He is coming again. And so Christ, He will come. He will judge the world. His coming will be public. His coming will be a joy and gladness and rejoicing to the believer, but it will be a terror to the unbeliever. But then notice in verse number 8, now we're going to deal more with this phrase next week, so I'm not skipping over it. Uh, you know when we go verse by verse, uh, I am going to deal more with this first expression next week. But notice he says, I am Alpha and Omega. Now, for our study tonight, primarily what I want us to understand about this declaration of Alpha and Omega is Christ is declaring his own deity. He is rightly and justly taking upon himself the very same honor and power that is ascribed to the Father. This is a powerful statement. 
For those that say Jesus was just a prophet, Jesus was just a good man, this is an example where Jesus himself says, I am Alpha and Omega, which he is, he is declaring his deity and his equality with the Father. Some have taught falsely that there is this degree of uh, honor and power that begins with God the Father who has all the power, then it's a little bit less with the Son, and then we get to the Spirit, and that's third rung. This is the same authority and same power and honor. Jesus is claiming equality with the Father, which is the very thing that the Pharisees and all the religious leaders and rulers of the day accused him of blasphemy, saying, how dare you say that you are God? Yet Jesus, even in that verse we read in Mark, when he said, I am, that's another statement of deity. I am Alpha and Omega. The literal meaning of that is I am the beginning and the ending. That's one meaning. We're going to see next week that it also means that I am the first and the last. So Alpha and Omega is not just beginning and ending. It means I'm also the first and the last. He declares his deity. But he's also confirming his second coming by himself. In other words, he is confirming that he is coming again. The beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty, which is to come. These are the words of Christ himself. It's Jesus, if you will, confirming what John is saying about him. He's confirming that this is indeed true. Every time that a question was placed at Jesus' feet, he always told the truth. He spoke truth before Pilate. He spoke truth in the synagogues. He always spoke truth. He never denied himself. He never said these things aren't so if they were so. He, he never lied. He's confirming He's confirming everything that John has said about him and everything that John will say about him. So what is true about our Lord? His person, His offices, His future coming, all true. We believe He is the great high priest. We believe He is the prophet. We believe He is the king. That we ought to believe just as equally that His coming again is that sure. And that's certain. Alpha, of course, is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last in the Greek alphabet. And it signifies what is being declared here. That Christ is the first and the last. So Alpha and Omega is mentioned in verse number 8. It's mentioned again in verse 11. And it's mentioned again... Uh, in verse 17, although he doesn't say Alpha and Omega, but here's what it says. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Uh, verse 17 is the Lord again himself saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Again, a confirmation that Jesus Christ is claiming the character that is ascribed to even his father, divinity. It's interesting that in Isaiah specifically, Isaiah makes reference to this 
this principle of these titles of Alpha and Omega. I'm going to give you a few of these tonight. So go to Isaiah chapter 41, first of all, and look at verse 4. So notice the language that Isaiah uses that is very, very similar to this Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, beginning and the end. Isaiah 41, verse 4. Who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am He. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. And beside me there is no God. Now Isaiah was using the terminology. He was using the phrase. He doesn't say Alpha and Omega, but he says first and the last. When Jesus says that, he's quoting Isaiah. I am Alpha and Omega. I'm the first and I'm the last. I'm the beginning and I am the ending. And then one more, Isaiah 48, 12. Hearken unto me. O Jacob and Israel, my called, I am He. I am the first. I also am the last. Jesus Himself confirms and gives proper proof of His own deity. That this Christ that's coming again is God. Now if we truly had an understanding... And the world had an understanding that an announcement has been made that the God of all creation, the God of the universe, is coming again. Man would be in complete reverence and terror, if you're an unbeliever, about what that means. If we truly understood God as we should, that is an object of our reverence and an object of our worship which really should put us on our face saying, Almighty God is coming here? Or maybe, maybe we've gotten too comfortable with here. Maybe tonight we say, the second coming, I want Him to come and all, but I have things here. We've all been prey to that. We've all been praying to saying, Lord, come sometime, but don't come quickly because I've got things I need to do here. If we really understood who God was and we truly understood His holiness and His righteousness and what that means for you as a child of God, you would be getting out of bed every day saying, even so, Lord, come quickly. If we could, come yesterday. If we truly understood who God is. His coming is not something that's negative to us. It's our glorious hope. It's the very pinnacle of our faith. And He says, I'm coming. And it's been confirmed. What does it mean when Christ says He's the beginning and the end? We tend to put things in our human perspective and we say, well, the beginning is the start of a thing and the end is the finish of a thing. But isn't it interesting to you that Christ says He's the beginning and the end, but yet He had no beginning and He has no ending. 
In, the, in the, the characteristics of God, God does not have a beginning. Jesus Himself didn't have a beginning. He didn't begin in the manger. He's always been. Many have argued over the reality of what is He saying here. Why didn't He just say, I am eternal? I think there's a little bit of a, an idea here that the, the human mind grasps hold of this thought first and last beginning and ending but when he says that what that means about him is it's what colossians and paul wrote specifically and even some in ephesians that all things are from him all things are by him and all things are for him when we see that he says i'm alpha and omega he is confirming what's been said about him what the father even declared about him that I have made him, I have given him, all things are for him, by him, and through him. That's what that really means. And notice the use of the word, and that which is to come, the Almighty. What is someone who is almighty? It's someone who is the ruler or the king of all. It's majesty. It's majestic. It's glorious. It's something that our minds really cannot even begin to fully grasp. His majesty. And yet, we're left trying to understand this majestic term he uses about himself. He says, I am the Almighty without weakness, all power, all strength, Immutable, unchangeable. This is an amazing declaration that Jesus is making about Himself. The Almighty. Over in the book of Job, chapter 37. This is, this is one of those moments where Job and, and his, his friends... But this is an acknowledgement that is being made between a conversation with Elihu. And at the very end of that chapter, uh, if, you'll, if you'll look at verse, uh, let's, let's look at verse um, 16. It says, Dost thou know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him, which is perfect in knowledge? How thy garments are warm when he quieteth the earth by the south wind? Hast thou with him spread out the sky, which is strong, and as a molten looking glass? Teach us what we shall say unto him, for we cannot order our speech by reason of darkness. Shall it be told him that I speak? If a man speak, surely he shall be swallowed up. And now men see not the bright light which is in the clouds, but the wind passes and cleanses them. Fair weather cometh out of the north, with God is terrible majesty." Touching the Almighty. Now, the phrase Almighty is a reference back to the Old Testament description of God, El Shaddai. Touching the El Shaddai. We cannot find Him out. He is excellent in power and in judgment and in plenty of justice. He will not afflict. Men do therefore fear Him. He respecteth not any that are wise of heart. There is so much here. But you notice that the majesty of the Almighty 
El Shaddai. A title of God that's used 31 times in the book of Job. El Shaddai. It's really associated with how God has revealed Himself. Listen, when Jesus Christ comes again, Jesus Christ is coming as El Shaddai. He's coming as the Almighty. He is the same eternal, unchangeable God. Anyone who says that or corrupt the name of Christ and says, I want nothing to do with Him. I want nothing to do with His majesty and His glory and His honor. Uh, Their names are not in that book of life. But yet those who look for His coming, those who honor Christ, even the Scriptures teach us those who honor Christ, Christ will honor them. But those who are wise in heart, they ought to fear. Folks, we should always be looking upon Christ's second coming and it should be something that is a source of not just casual interest, but something we truly believe as something that is sure and certain. Sometimes I feel, and I don't think this is a new thought, it doesn't originate with me, but I think sometimes we're much like what Peter was warning about when he said there will be scoffers who will say, where is the promise of His coming? Sometimes we live in this life as if we don't really believe He's coming again. And when we live that way, we're living as if we really don't believe it. Or maybe we just in our mind's eye say, well, yeah, He's coming again, but the odds are He's not coming today or He's not coming then. No, it shouldn't be something we're dreading. It should be something that we're anxiously anticipating. That we're beholding. We're pausing. We're looking for. We're meditating on the reality of when He comes. John says, Behold, He comes, He cometh. And He announces it as if it's already happening. In the mysteries of God, this is the only way I can put this, He's already coming. It's already in action. This is not something that He just all of a sudden gets up and says, okay, now's the time. No, He's already coming. That's why John says, behold, He comes. Everything is already moving in that direction. What should we understand from this? So if if this is not going to be a deep, divine, theological, gigantic nugget to take to take with you tonight, but I want you to think about this. Here is the theological moment of the night. God wants us and means for us to understand that Christ is already on His way back to this world. He's already coming. As sure as you and I are seated here tonight, He's coming. Behold, He comes. I trust that you're ready. I trust that you as a believer are looking for His return. But if you're an unbeliever tonight, that is a terrifying proposition to you. And the encouragement is is that you would repent and believe the Gospel and run to Christ. He will not cast you out. Repent of your sins and believe on Christ alone. And Christ is the only satisfaction for the sins before an almighty, holy God. 
But you believer tonight, I hope you'll leave tonight encouraged. The pinnacle of your faith rests on this certain promise that Jesus Christ is coming again. Behold, He cometh. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, what comforting, glorious truths and words we have read and heard tonight. And Lord, I thank You that the clarity of what is written before us, Lord, is so clear and so sure. It's as if the event of Christ's coming has already happening and is happening. May we as believers tonight live with that in our mind. May we truly desire to live as if Christ is coming. Or may we not be like the scoffers. May we not give in to the whims of society and so fall in love with this world that we begin to even doubt and maybe even want to push back our glorious Lord's return. May this, may this be the desire of our heart. But Father, we pray for those who are outside of the body of Christ as well. Those who do not know Christ as their Savior. Lord, we desire none to be separated from Christ for all of eternity. We desire none to spend an eternity in hell. But Lord, we know that salvation is of the Lord. And unless you draw them, unless they are drawn, they cannot be saved. And Father, in your perfect will, may you draw your people unto yourself. But may we also be faithful in proclaiming this glorious gospel. May we give and preach the gospel as if we truly believe that Christ is coming again. May we never take this great truth for granted. Father, thank you for these words and thank you for the discernment that the Holy Spirit gives us. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, if you would, let's stand and let's finish with the hymn, familiar hymn, 296. Hallelujah, what a Savior.